Praise the Lord. Thank you so much. So much for that. It's always a benefit to us to be able to hear the praises that come from the First Baptist Church Choir. Well, I grew up in a house in a neighborhood that had one entrance to it, and it's about a mile long. And we lived at the front of the neighborhood, third house on the right. But I had friends that lived at the end of the neighborhood, about the fifth house from the end on the left. And I remember one time in particular that the friends from the end of the neighborhood had come to our house and we were playing, hanging out, doing whatever we were doing as kids. And it had gotten to that critical moment where it had gotten dark and um, it was time to head home. My parents weren't home at the time and they were dreading the walk from our end of the neighborhood to their end of the neighborhood. Had a huge hill in the middle and a a nice sharp turn. Nothing like some of y'all who walked uphill both ways in the snow to school, but still dramatic nonetheless. And they were dreading having to walk home, and my brother, who's three and a half years older than me, he always has been, and I guess he always will be, but he spoke up and he said, well, I'll just drive him home. And we were like, huh? He said, yeah. He had just recently got his permit, which means he could drive, but there's a critical uh, uh, part to that driving. He had to have the other driver in the passenger seat next to him, and we were like, what do you mean? He said, well, dad's keys are here to the company car, and I could just uh, drive them, and, you know, we'll be back. Nobody will know. And sure enough, it's a straight shot, a little bit of a hill, sharp turn, but no big deal. So we piled into Dad's company car, and um, my brother drove him home. And, you know, whenever you're young and you've done something wrong, let's just be honest. Anytime you're doing something wrong, you feel like everybody's watching, right? And so he just knew everybody was peeping out between the blinds, saying, what is Ken doing driving that car? And that kind of fear prevented him from driving to the end of the road where there was a nice cul-de-sac that he could have circled around. And so he stopped short of their house, dropped them off, and decided to do a three-point turn in the middle of the road. Everything was going fine until he hit that storm drain and the tire blew. I know. Well, I don't remember what happened exactly at that point. I just remember being in the side of the road in the grass, hands raised to God, hot tears rolling down my face. God! Please let this tire reinflate. God, please don't let us get caught. You know, super dramatic as a kid. Not anymore, but as a kid I was. My brother was much more level-headed, and uh, he went and called my father, and my dad answered the phone, and he said, Son, where's the car? And uh, I'm not sure the punishment that happened, but I'm pretty sure I'm still under restriction from that whole ordeal. I'll have to ask him next time I talk to him. But the guilt I felt was almost enough punishment. Have you ever been there before? Well, this message today, this sermon today is for anyone who has ever done anything wrong and felt guilty over it. That includes all of us, right? Well, there's this intriguing passage of Scripture in John's Gospel that um, actually causes a little bit of an uh, issue or frustration for some people. Because it seems to interrupt another complete thought that John is making in his Gospel And so much so that some people say it's out of place and it shouldn't be in this particular part of the scriptures, maybe even in Luke's gospel. And I know that's kind of a confusing thing to hear whenever you're studying God's word that you trust. But let me say that experts say that this is definitely a true account of Jesus um, and an encounter he had that happens to be one of the most famous encounters that Jesus had in all of scripture. And so we're going to turn our Bibles. Uh, to the fourth book of the New Testament, John's Gospel, chapter 8. And I'm going to start reading to you from verse um, 2. It says, At dawn he went to the temple complex again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, 
This woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commands us, commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started riding on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued riding on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful gift we have in this preserved word for us. That we can turn to it and not just hear the accounts of Jesus' life, but we can hear truth for our own lives. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and have your way in our hearts and in our lives. That you would change us, that you would challenge us today. God, and that you would make us open and willing to respond. We love you, and it's in your Son's name that we pray these things. Amen. One of the things that always stands out to me when I study uh, the life of Jesus in the New Testament is um, how much charisma he had. People just loved being close to Jesus. People of all backgrounds loved to be near to Jesus. Um, in fact, uh, it seems that those who were furthest away from God by conventionalism were the people that you always found closest to Jesus. And that's an interesting thing, and I'm sure that's ex- exactly what's happening in this passage when Jesus returns to the temple complex to teach. So there's this crowd of people from all different types of backgrounds, and Jesus did what any good rabbi would do. He sat down to teach. Now that kind of sounds counterintuitive to us in our culture, doesn't it? That he would sit down to teach. When somebody walks in to teach, what do you expect them to do? You expect them to stand up, right? But in Jesus' time, the rabbis uh, saw that sit, uh, seat, uh, sitting, excuse me, sitting was a posture of authority. And so they would take the posture of authority and begin to teach. There's also a nice part to this because when you sat down and you spoke for hours upon hours, you didn't wear out, right? So with that in mind, I'm just going to back right here because I've got a few things. Just kidding. If I sit down, you know it's going to get bad. But Jesus was seated there at the temple complex as he started to teach. And right in the middle of his lesson, he gets a little audience participation. Uh, the Pharisees and the scribes uh, walk in, interrupt him completely. And they have a woman in tow that had been caught um, in the act of adultery. We're not given the name of this woman. Um, simply call her a woman with regret. Uh, scriptures. Uh, headlines have little titles for her, but she was not anyone specific. Just a nameless, faceless, I would argue, pawn. And the Pharisees and scribes ploy or plot to trap Jesus. So this, they, with no care for this woman, they use her as a means to an end. And briefly, I just want us to consider this woman. Obviously, I know no more than you do about her, but I know people. And if she's anybody, anywhere like other people that I know... I imagine that when she gets caught, she's thinking, how in the world did this happen? How did I get here? Because she probably would have never planned this moment in her life, right? Not from the beginning. Now, we don't know whether she was married or betrothed or divorced. The language of the Bible tends to point towards that maybe she was married. So we'll assume she was married. And like every other bride on their wedding day, I'm sure she had all kinds of hopes and dreams and visions and plans for her life. That included faithfulness uh, to her husband who she loved and respected. And maybe uh, soul-satisfying joy that comes out of partnership with her spouse. 
I'm sure she didn't plan this day as it kind of happened, but like most other people or many other people will say, life and marriage didn't quite go how she had planned. We don't know what happened, but I know sometimes what happens is that there's somebody who pays a little bit uh, more attention uh, than she was used to. Maybe make pay a compliment or say something, and it's flattering and probably innocent in the beginning. But at some point, they cross a line. And I'm sure she felt an overwhelming sense of guilt whenever they crossed the line. But, you know, humans have an amazing capability of when they feel guilt to be able to push it down to the point that they can continue doing things they know are wrong and eventually be able to do it with so much ease that they feel zero remorse while they're doing it. And I don't know, but maybe that's exactly what this woman had done. And she was living in two worlds, kind of covering up this other side with nobody knowing it was going on. At least that's what she thought. John Ortberg has said, sin unchecked always leads to more sin. And I have found that true in my own life. Whenever I do something in my life or say something or think something and I don't call it sin and I don't confess it as sin and nobody else calls it out on me, it never leads to righteousness. It always leads to more sin in my life. And maybe that's what happened to this woman. And so here she is with a man and unthinkable happens. The door busts open and all of a sudden these men come in and drag her out. And she's probably thinking, how in the world? And as much as she wants to think that she's a victim of circumstances, as we all do, she was a victim of her own choices, right? At some point in her life, she had made a choice. And that's what led to this turn of events. And I want to pause right there for just a moment. Because I'd venture to say or to guess that many of you are wrestling with sin today. And it might be that you're wrestling with this exact situation that this woman's wrestling with when she's pulled out into the Temple Mount. It could be it was a host of any other sinful lifestyles that you're wrestling with right now. And I'd venture to say that some of you are probably standing on the brink of an affair. And it's been innocent up until this point, but you've walked right up to the line and you know any moment now that it's going to cross the line. Some of you may have already crossed the line and you're starting to cover things up, but living in two worlds. I want to be that person today that confronts it and just says to you, would you have the courage to end it? Would you have the courage this day to stop it? Because this is not the life that you want. Remove yourself from the situation. Look at the destination you're headed towards and say, that's not where I want to go. I'm going to stop it right now. And I would venture to guess that there's some people in here that are wrestling with secret, sinful, sexual behaviors because statistics tell us it's rampant in our society. Even within the church. It used to be just men, but now we're told that women are even struggling with this to a great degree. And it could be that uh, you just returned from a business trip and that remote landed on a channel that they cover up the charges on your credit card so nobody can really trace what happened there. But you've got the guilt today. Or maybe students, you figured out a way to work on the computer so that your parents can't trace where you've been, but you live in fear that what if they figure out what pages I viewed? Or maybe you've got a computer that's been issued to you by a company and you're like, I wonder if they know what sites I go to. Or maybe you spend time on social media sites or in places that you're involved in conversations or viewing things that you shouldn't. And you've just started to cover it up and you're living in this secret sinful lifestyle. And there's plenty of other secret sinful pleasures that we indulge in that are probably gripping our, culture, our congregation today. And you know what it is, whatever it is. And you probably rationalize it by saying that uh, circumstances led me to this. This wasn't the life I would have chosen. But, you know. 
Or maybe you say, um, uh, you, you, you lie to yourself and you say, it's just two-dimensional. It's not really affecting me. It's not really affecting my family. It's just, you know, two-dimensional thing I'm dealing with here. Or it might be that you look to the people next to you and you're like, you know what? If this is the worst thing I do in comparison to what they do, because you know what those things are, and you say, it's not that big of a deal. Ralph Vinon wrote, as God is holy, all holy, only holy, altogether holy, and always holy. So sin is sinful, all sinful, only sinful, altogether sinful, and always sinful. So before you try to rationalize the darkness that's in your hearts, I want to remind you how seriously God takes the sinful actions, words, and thoughts in our hearts today. Whether it's large or small in our eyes, it is heinous in God's eyes. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we must not live lives that say by our actions that I don't care if he hates my sin. I'm going to keep on living this way. That's a very dangerous path to head down as a follower of Christ. But we don't know exactly how she got there, but this woman made decisions that found her at the hands of a mob. Remember, this is not some private conversation. They didn't catch this happening and then all of a sudden go to Jesus in private and say, Teacher, we want to get some input here. They put it on full display out in the middle of the temple complex, right? Where everybody can hear and everybody can say. They have to. Because what he says in response to, they want to be public. So that they can, because he's their target. It's not the woman. Jesus is their target. They're willing to humiliate the woman because they're after Jesus. And, you know, you have to wonder why they're so threatened. By Jesus, It probably has to do with power. He has a following. If he gets in control, what's going to happen to us? But they want to catch him. And so they say, teacher. I'm sure they said it with contempt. Teacher. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. Well, that's a pretty revealing statement, isn't it? Caught in the act. Old Testament law demands that uh, an allegation like this had to be, it couldn't be circumstantial evidence. It couldn't be hearsay. It had to be witnessed, not by one, but by two or three. And they had to bring the allegation. And so if we imagine it to be that these people have laid a plot to catch Jesus, that they've been sitting by, on standby, waiting and watching and following this woman so they could pull off their plan. So how long have they been waiting? I don't know. How long have they been watching? I don't know. How much have they seen? I don't know. But they didn't intervene to stop it. They waited till it happened and they dragged her in. And the whole question I think that comes before all of our minds is, Where's the man? Because she was caught in the act with somebody else. Where is he? The New American Commentary asks, Why was he not brought before Jesus? Did he escape? Was he merely a plant by a vengeful husband or by a group seeking to condemn Jesus? So in a lot of ways, we readers have more questions than we do answers about this narrative here. But the clear message is this. This woman is just a prop. She's a prop so that this mob can catch Jesus and something that they feel like will ruin his ministry. And so they say, we caught her in the act. Moses' law says that we're to stone her. And so we know what the law says, but what about you? What do you say, teacher? And commentators point out, no matter what Jesus does at this point, he's got a difficult response to give. It says, to choose either one would call for the condemnation of Jesus because he would be viewed on the one hand of being against the law of Moses, and on the other, of advocating mob action involving capital punishment. And if Jesus did call for this woman to be stoned, there would be the Roman authority who would be very frustrated and not look kindly on that. So you've got to think the mob says, we got him now. What's he going to do? How's he going to escape? 
We've got them right here in this moment. Now, you know, it's really easy for us to look at this mob, these Pharisees and these scribes or teachers of the law, and look on them with just complete contempt. Um, But I have a question for you. Have you ever had a stone in your pocket that you're holding on to against somebody before? I'd like to think the best about you, and the truth is I'd like to think the best about me. I know that my relationship with the Lord and my journey of faith is rooted in love. The reason that I love His Word and I love to do what's right is because I love Him. But I still pick up stones. And I wonder about these Pharisees. You know, I like to think the worst about them because if they're the worst, that means I can never be lumped in with them. But I have to wonder if their initial journey of faith was rooted in love. Did they initially... Uh, have a loving relationship with a loving God. And they demanded righteousness for themselves and led this life initially because of love. But like me at times, they saw their strict lifestyle and their discipline um, and they felt good about themselves. So good, in fact, they started to swell their chests and they raised their noses. And they developed this spiritual superiority or moral superiority when they looked at the people around them. And rather than just demanding a certain level of discipline with themselves, they looked at others and they said, I wonder why they can't do this. And they started to put stones in their pocket. They lost patience with other people. They couldn't understand the weaker brother or the weaker sister. And their, hurt, their hearts that could have started with love all of a sudden got hard and cold towards God and towards other people. And that self-righteous, judgmental attitude is so dangerous and destructive for any follower of God. Because it leads you to kind of keep your pockets full of rocks and stones. And you walk through life and you look at other people. And you have these rocks of judging thoughts. Or impatient words or bitter resentment towards the people around you that you think less of. But let's be honest. Stone throwers run rampant in the church. People judging the way people parent. Or how they act in their marriage, the way they dress, the places they go to, the things they see, all those kinds of things. People who are energized by gathering rocks and finding unworthy people to hurl them at. You know, that would be unbelievable to me that this happens in the church. Except for one thing. I find myself doing the exact same thing. I have those thoughts slip into my mind. I have gossip that I spread. I have conversations I don't put an end to, even though I know that I should. I even judge people's motives, even though I have no clue why they do the things they do. And I sometimes celebrate in my mind and sometimes with people whenever people, certain people mess up. Because for some reason, I think that improves my lot in life. How terrible and destructive for me to allow that into my heart and into my life. God be gracious to us. God be gracious to us. So these respected lovers of God, the Pharisees and scribes, stand ready to hurl stones at this trembling woman. And all attention turns to the teacher. Well, what do you say, teacher? What do you say, O rabbi? You're the wise one here. We know what Moses says, but tell us what you say. And Jesus does a very peculiar thing. The scripture says that he stoops over. I'll read it to you. Jesus stooped down and started riding on the ground with his finger. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? Students, have you ever been in a class when all of a sudden the teacher asks a question and they start looking out? And you start lowering your eyes? <laughs> you know, that eye contact, they're going to call on me, you know? Um, or teachers, have you ever been in a class and a student asks a question and you're like, I don't want to answer that. So you're like, uh, what do you all think? You know, because you don't want to give your own answer. Or politicians, have you ever been caught in a debate where they pose a question and you don't like the question? So you say, 
I'll answer another question. You answer a totally different question thinking we don't notice. You ever done that? You know, we all have our stall tactics or our ways to escape these moments. And I don't know if that's what Jesus is doing. Probably not what he's doing when he's doodling. But I'll tell you this. Commentators love this. They love to try to guess what's Jesus writing in the sand. They say maybe he's writing out the Ten Commandments. Or maybe he's writing out what everybody else has done. We have no clue what he's writing. And I don't think they're being over-analytical what he's doodling on the ground. Because the scripture says that they just keep on, you know, coming at questions with him. You know, that they're, they're saying, okay, Jesus, come on. Answer the question. We know what the law says. And here's the woman. We have two witnesses or more. And what are we going to do? What do you say we do? And all of a sudden, Jesus stands up. And I bet you could hear a pin drop. What's he going to say? And he says, all right, go ahead and stone the woman. Just be sure that the one who throws the first stone is without sin. And with that, stoops back down and starts drawing in the sand. And you have to imagine the people are like, huh? Whoa. Because, see, this woman, she had kind of like front page of the newspaper kind of sin. It was very obvious to everybody that she had done something wrong. Nobody was going to argue whether it was right or wrong or she had done something wrong. And it was so wrong, in fact, they couldn't see the sin in their own lives. That it was so clear in her that they were blinded by it and they couldn't see their own sin. You know, it's a dangerous thing whenever people start passing judgment as sinners. One of my son's uh, sons likes to uh, announce at the end of the prayer who had their eyes open, you know. I don't know if you know anybody like that, but, you know, it's better, you better be careful pointing out other people's sins. Because when sinful people start passing judgment, they pass judgment on themselves before a sinless, holy God. And this mob of people with rocks in their hand turn that thought over in their minds until one of them drops the stone and walks away. And then another does the same, and another does the same. And let me ask you a question today. Is there anybody here in the room that needs to drop a stone? That anybody that needs to let go of rocks. Because I imagine that many of you brought in here some rocks with you today. Judgmental thoughts, self-righteous attitudes toward people. It might be that people that really hurt you. It might be rocks against a parent, a mother or father. It could be against a spouse, an ex. It could be uh, another loving family member. It could be a boss or a co-worker, a classmate, a teacher, a neighbor. And you've been carrying that rock so long you can't remember life without it. And it might even be just generally for people who enjoy life because you're so frustrated with the lot that you've been handled. Or it might be people that don't see things the way you do. And so you've got rocks in your pocket and you're ready to hurl them at a moment's notice. Well, I happen to have a pretty radical belief about God. And that's this, that in a place like this, He's in our midst and He's working in our hearts. And could it be in this seemingly insignificant moment, it could be a consecrated holy place where we start dropping the rocks that we're carrying against people. I think that began with a simple prayer. Oh God, help me. Help me open my hand. Some of you, it's probably going to cost you. All of us, it'll cost something. It might be the cost of having to apologize. Having to make something right. Having to serve somebody that you'd rather hurt. It might be that you have to get up and walk across the room today. And apologize to somebody here. John Ortberg has said that uh, there's no room for stones in the family of faith. We're way too broken for that. Well, in the temple courts, one by one, they set their stones down and they left until it was just Jesus and this woman. And his words um, were, let the one without sin cast the first stone. 
You notice there's somebody without sin in the assembly? Jesus is there. So would he have been with fully within his rights to go pick up the stones to throw at this woman? Well, as much as we would like an antinomian gospel that says there's lawlessness in the kingdom of God, go on sinning. There's nothing wrong with it. We know God hates sin, and she had sinned. And so couldn't Christ have pick, picked up those stones and gone after that woman? Because she had sinned. But Jesus doesn't pick, a stone, pick up a stone. Instead, he asks a question. He says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Is there nobody in the group who's without sin? And I don't know about you, but I hear a clear message in Christ's words there. Are they just the same as you are? Just a broken sinner? They've got puffed out chests and raised noses, but they're in the same boat as you? Has no one condemned you? And she responds, no one, Lord. And that single title at the end of her response could have been the beginning of faith for her. Jesus says, okay, then I don't condemn you either. And the offer that's being made is, do you want to start life all over? Would you like a clean slate? Would you like to leave this life behind and be reborn and live a new life? Well, you ought to ask the question, how can he do that? How can Jesus do that? Well, I want to remind you, in case you missed it, when this woman walked into the temple complex that day, she had a death sentence on her. If Jesus had not stood up, we assume they would have thrown the rocks and killed her right there. So Jesus literally stood between her and death. And when they dropped the stones and they left, they didn't want to kill her anymore. But they wanted him dead. And you know what? He would die. She would live. And he would die. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Now, he gives us a very interesting closing statement. He says, before you go away, start again. Just one more thing. Go and leave your sin behind. Sin no more. And it makes sense because he saved her life. So shouldn't she live in a way that honors him? Because the rest of her life is a credit to him. Grace doesn't mean you don't have to repent. Grace gives you the power to be able to repent. Now, people have mistakenly believed that this woman just got off the hook, right? That she didn't have any sort of um, uh, payment to be made. But the truth is, it wasn't all made clean. She was going to have to go and talk to her lover and end it. She was going to have to talk to her husband and face him. And who knows how that would go. She might have to face children if she had them. But we know that it wasn't just all made perfect. And I think sometimes we think it should be, but we still pay consequences for our sins. But let me tell you this, no matter what happened from that point on, if in her saying, no one, Lord, it was a statement of faith, and we know this, that she could live in the truth that wasn't quite pinned yet, but was still true, that, uh, that Paul wrote to the letter, uh, in his letter to the Romans when he said, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death for what the law was powerless to do. And that it was weakened by sinful nature. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man that he might be a sin offering. And those righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in him. That is gospel. That's good news. That we can walk away in Christ with no condemnation today. Our Heavenly Father, what a wonderful, wonderful thing that you've given us this, not just story, but truth for us. And Jesus, we thank you that you alone paid the penalty for our sin. You stood between us and death. 
when you were on the cross. The punishment that we deserved, you took into yourself. And so that means that we can stand here with complete faith and be clean before a holy God. Our sins taken away, but not only that, clothed in your righteous robes, Jesus. So we pray now as we consider this, that we wouldn't say that's a neat story, or we wouldn't say, wow, never thought of it that way. But we would be challenged as we open our hearts and our minds and our attitudes to you, Lord. Use this time for your own benefit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now there's an invitation. And the truth is the invitation is for every single person in the room. Now some of you need to respond to the invitation in a physical display by walking down. And some of you need to talk with our volunteers to find out how you can be made right with God and you can follow Jesus today. Some of you have been visiting our church for for a while, but today you need to join our church. Some of you just need to come down here and kneel at the altar and just pray and seek God's face and say, God, I'm so sorry, and start dropping the stones and start leaving the sin here. Some of you may need to pray with somebody else, and the truth is some of you may have some really deep stuff that you're going to have to work on for a period of time moving forward. But what I want you to know is the invitations for everybody here. So we're all going to respond differently. Some are going to respond where you are. But I just want you in your own heart to say, Holy Spirit, what is it that you want me to do? How should I respond to this grace and this good news and this gospel? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to stand. And our choir is going to sing. And I'm going to be waiting down front. And there'll be some other people. And you respond as the Holy Spirit works in your heart. So you go ahead and stand and we'll respond to the invitation.